0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not
1: ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we're so glad you can be with us for the next hour. If you're a new listener, uh, what we do here is we take people's questions concerning God's Word, maybe a passage you're struggling with or a particular issue in your life or ministry or family that you would like help with, and you have several options. You can call us directly at 843-525-1859, and you can go on the air live. We do give uh, preference to live callers, or... If you're more comfortable you can simply dictate your question we're happy to receive it that way as well or you can email us here directly into the studio at tbl that stands for the bible line tbl at net, and it will come right here to our screens so um, let's go ahead rick we'll, we'll get started i think we've had some email questions that have come in and we'll kind of run from there
0: all right pastor um kimberly writes i have a question about first fruit giving that is a practice in my church at the beginning of a new year. Members give their best financial gift, and the pastor waves the offering. This will bless out life financially for that new year. I've read Proverbs 8, 9 and 10, and Leviticus 23, 10 through 14. These scriptures talk about first fruit giving. I interpret these scriptures to be about farming and harvesting of grain. I would like to know more, please.
1: Well, it's a good question. Let me read Proverbs 4. This, I think, is an abused verse of Scripture, and it's abused in a lot of churches, especially some of our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and some of the prosperity theology churches, Joel Olstein and a lot of other guys, Creflo Dollar and some false prophets, some men who have the gospel. So it's, uh, it's just a misunderstood text of Scripture. In Proverbs 3, Solomon writes uh, this, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then he says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So, honor the Lord with your possessions is the principle here that God is underscoring. Uh, God is the one who has blessed us with everything that we have. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, uh, Psalm 24 says. God owns it all. That just makes us stewards. And when we give to the Lord, and I do believe the biblical principle is the tithe and the offering. There's no such thing as a first fruit offering except in the Feast of first fruits, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But um, what is affirmed in the Bible is that when God blessed us with something, we gave a tenth back to him. Now, obviously, tithing is not purely an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And so God dictated not only the tithe, but then he reminded that some of the Israelis had robbed him in offerings. So the command was bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's expected you start with the 10th and i know there are people today who say well that's legalistic that's old testament law that has no relevance for today i just they're just wrong i don't want to be mean or unkind but they're just wrong for 1900 years of church history there was one unanimous voice you read the church fathers who are closest to the apostles you read Uh, The late church fathers, the early church fathers, you read the Protestant reformers. There was one unanimous voice that tithing was part of God's moral law and not purely part of the Mosaic law. True, there are some things that apply simply to the Old Testament age, and it's important when you think through a biblical command, you want to ask, well, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? there are certainly some things that are descriptive. When God said to uh, Abraham, you know, take your son, your only son, to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him there, that was not a command of the church. That was a specific command describing what God had called Abraham to do. There are other things that are prescriptive, and so God teaches us through uh, Abraham's lie. There's a lesson there that, uh, you know, is important. Um, And so, You have to look at context and those kinds of things. When you come to tithing, it's done, of course, ever before the Mosaic Law is given. Uh, Ever before Moses steps on the planet Earth, the very first tithe in all the Bible is Abraham giving a tenth to Melchizedek. Now, some think that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think so, but um, most would at least say at the the least he is a type of Christ. How do I know that? At the least he's a type of Christ because that's the way the book of Hebrews describes him in the seventh chapter. But whether you think he's an illustration of Christ or whether you think he is the pre-incarnate Christ, what I find interesting is that Abraham is giving his his, uh, tenth to the Lord, to the Lord Christ, so to speak. How did he know that? Why didn't Abraham give 2% or 20% or 100%? Well, Abraham is the father of the faithful. That's one of the titles that God gives him. He's also called the friend of God. And as the father of the faithful, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. He would have received revelation from God that this is where you begin. Uh, So you see the pattern, not just with him, with his grandson, Jacob, he gives a tithe. You see it commanded under the law through Moses, Nehemiah, Malachi. Christ affirms it in the New Testament, Matthew 23, 23. Just because it's not repeated in the epistles doesn't mean that it doesn't apply for today. And that's one of the arguments that people use. Uh, No, it applies fully. Listen, bestiality is not commanded anywhere in the New Testament, gospel or epistles. It's still a sin. Baptism is found in the gospels, nowhere found in the epistles, Nowhere are found in the epistles now spirit baptism is we've been all baptized by one spirit, buried with Christ in baptism that 's a reference to spirit baptism, though water baptism illustrates it, but that's a reference to spirit baptism, so we're born of water in the spirit, and so there are many references to uh, the work of the spirit in our life in reference to the term baptized, but there are no water baptism commands in the epistles, and not a command. Now, Paul does by inference refer to it in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So he assumed it to be true. So something only has to be said once for it to be true, and tithing is part of God's moral eternal law. The offering was above the tithe. Uh, This passage here in Proverbs is dealing with the subject of, you don't give God your left Overs. You honor him with the first of all your produce. Now, there was a feast. There are seven feasts in the Old Testament. One is called the first, uh, Feast of First Fruits. There was four in the fall, and, uh, four in the spring, and three in the fall. The three fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled in Christ. The four um, spring feasts were fulfilled at his first coming. They're illustrative, of what Christ is going to ultimately accomplish. So they're not just randomly picked. God had a purpose by illustration each feast whether it's Passover or the Feast of First Fruits is seen in the resurrection and so forth. They are all illustrative of what Christ was going to accomplish in his earthly ministry. But when you brought the first fruit what you were doing is you brought the, when the harvest came, there was the front end of the harvest. They call it first fruits to this day. If you're in the farming community, many farmers refer to the, you know, the early fruits that come, the early strawberries, the early blueberries. Uh, There's a certain crop cycle where you get this little shot in the arm, so to speak, and it's a picture of what is going to come. And when first fruits came, they would take some of those and they would offer it to the Lord and they dedicated it to him out of gratitude and out of a sense of expectation for what he was going to bring in the rest of the harvest, the harvest that would follow. And of course, they would bring a single stalk, a handful of grain, and then uh, the great crop would come in. And that's exactly how it's illustrated in the New Testament. Christ is the first fruit of him raised from the dead. He's the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. Others were raised to life. Christ alone was first resurrected to life as a handful of Old Testament saints also pictured in that. And then the first resurrection program begins There's a number of resurrections that begin to follow after that. So when he says, honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, you're not giving God your leftovers, where you pay all your bills, and then if you have any money left over, you give God a dime. No, you give God a tenth to start, and he may lead you to give an offering above that, uh, so that your barns will be filled with plenty. And that's really the promise that's consistent with what you read, Amalekite. Test me now, and this says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. And that that's something that God calls us to test him in. Typically, God says, don't test him. Shall not test the Lord thy God. A few verses later in Malachi 3.15, he warns the Jews about testing him. But in this one particular area, God says, I want you to prove me. I want you to test me. I want you to take me at my word. Now, some people think, well, I gave a 10th and, you know, why aren't my needs being met? Well, sometimes because we're violating other biblical principles or we are under the discipline of God. But what you discover typically is that when a person begins to give the 10th out of their first fruits, not their leftovers, but at the front end, that they uh, stewardship the other 90% so far differently. And they discover, too, that they can do so much more with the nine ninths that God leaves with them than the ten tenths if they did it all by themselves. And so that's the promise that your brines would be filled with plenty and your vats would overflow with new wine. New wine would represent the initial juice that came from the squeeze. Again, you're not giving the leftover, you're giving the first. And God is giving a promise of blessing. But there is not this, uh, you know, first Sunday of the year, some pastor or some date that he picks and you know, we're going to come and that, that's just the health, wealth, prosperity nonsense that unfortunately is being preached by Creflo Dollar and, you know, Kenneth Copeland and all these other crooks and false prophets, Joel Osteen. They're just crooks. They don't even have the gospel, these guys. It's terrible. And yet they're they're sucking money from God's people and manipulating them, and it's sad. Uh, By the way, I will be offering a course on Wednesday night starting the Wednesday after Easter, and it's going to be on the subject of money. And it will be a 10-week course, 10 Wednesday nights in a row, very, very in-depth on what the Bible says about money, whether it's stewardship or or giving, and we'll explore some of the things that I just mentioned on tithing, and some people who say, well, the tithe wasn't 10 percent, but 13 or 23 percent, and we'll look at all these different things, and where a uh, denial of tithing came in historically in the church, and who started it, and who promoted it, and we'll look at all the ins and outs about giving, and debt, and how to get out of it, and investing, and what does the Bible say on that, and planning for the future, and just a number of things over 10 weeks, and that will start the week after Easter. All right, let's go ahead and
0: let's go to the next question. alright two five one eight five nine. if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Leslie writes, Hi, Pastor Brogie, I traveled to Israel with you and the church last May. The trip made me want to be a better scholar of history of Israel and the Old Testament. What resources would you recommend that might help? I've been a Bible student for many years, so advanced materials would be okay for me. Also, thank you so much for the occasional Bible tips you give. Although I've been a Bible student for many years, no one has ever really taught me tips on how to find books in the Bible. I really should be better at that at this stage, and the tips you give on Sunday really help. Well, those
1: are great questions, Leslie, and I'm glad it's here on the screen because I know you've asked me and you're waiting for an answer, and I... Um I told you I would answer, so I might as well do it now since it's here on the screen. Sorry, I didn't get back to you sooner. A couple of books. There's a a brother, uh, Elwood McQuaid. He's uh, punching his 70s now. In fact, we used to support his son as a missionary for about 20 years, Uh, but he's lived most of his life in Israel. I think he's back in the States now, but uh, he has had a passionate love for the Jewish people in trying to... Uh, encourage them towards Jesus being the Messiah. And he wrote a little book called For the Love of Zion. And it's a classic little work. It's short. It's been in print for around 20 years. And I would suggest that. Um, There's a more recent book that's just come out in the last few years. It's not written by a Christian, but it's written by a Jewish man named Daniel Gordas. And it's called Israel. And that's the title of it, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. That's the subtitle. It's one of the better books I've read in recent years in terms of uh, describing modern-day Israel, in terms of the whole Zionist movement, you know, uh, how that began in the late 1890s and uh, the various uh, pacts that were made with Britain and how eventually they were recognized as a nation in May of forty They're regathering in the land, and it's a great little... uh, Book. It's, I don't know, two, 250 pages long, if I remember, um, but I would, I would suggest that. And then if you wanted to read a theological treatise on Israel, there's a book called Israology. In fact, I just gave it to a Jewish rabbi friend of mine, and he's working through it very slowly. It's not an easy read. I think it's around 900 or 1,000 pages, pages, a very tight print. And it's written by a, a Messianic Jew by the name of Arnold Fruchenbaum. And uh, Arnold Fruchenbaum, he is a, um, he's a great brother in Christ, and what he's done is he's gone through the whole Bible systematically on the subject of Israel. And unfortunately, in most systematic theologies, there's an approach that you take to your eschatology, to your ecclesiology, to the various realms of Christian theology, and um, and they're applying the same principles so when we think of say bibliology we're studying what does the bible say about the bible pneumatology pneumatos versus biblios for bible pneumatos is the word for spirit so what does the bible say about the holy spirit and so you go through all the passages in the bible on the holy spirit or uh you might you know take um ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, because ecclesia is usually translated church in the New Testament, though it can mean other things like a mob or a crowd, but generally it refers to the church. So um, unfortunately, a lot of systematic theologies do not have a concise approach just to the nation of Israel. And so he's done a great service to the body of Christ, and uh, I would highly recommend that book, Israelogy, Arnold Fruchenbaum. I'm sure you can find it online at Amazon or at Half.com. That's the used book side of eBay. And if a book's been in print for a few years, uh, someone doesn't want to keep it in their library and they just want to sell it so they can buy another book. Sometimes you can get it for a third of the price. Uh, I've bought books that right now are new, forty, fifty dollars for like two dollars at half.com plus shipping of four or five dollars and you can really save a lot of money and sometimes you can find a book that originally came out in hardback so you don't have to buy the paperback edition which is kind of nice for your library all right great question Leslie let's go to the next one
0: all right Jeremy from uh, Charlotte North Carolina writes if the Jews are in unbelief because they did not accept Christ, if they hear the gospel but don't accept Jesus and are left behind after the rapture, Will they also remain in strong disillusion when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation? Or will they have a second opportunity to believe in Christ? And you kind of addressed this a little bit on this past Sunday.
1: Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, The Jewish people obviously are a unique group in that they are the chosen people that God uh, brought the Messiah through. Jesus is a Jew, So, you know, we have this anti-Semitic movement in our country, uh, the Boycott, Divest, Sanction Movement, BDS, that is really big now on college campuses across the nation, Uh, this pro-Palestinian, anti-Jewish approach, and even we've just seen recently a representative in the House of Representatives, a Muslim, who had to apologize yesterday for her anti-Semitic statements, um... Most people have no idea how hateful the Muslims are towards the Jews. And they think, well, Muslims love Jews. Well, they don't really. Uh, they um, if there, There's two kinds of Christians. There's the kind of Christian that takes the Bible seriously and they believe and follow the Bible. That's the kind of Christian you want to be versus the, just the nominal Christian. Well, the kind of Muslim that you'd rather have in the United States is the guy who doesn't follow the Quran is just a westernized Muslim, doesn't even know half of what the Quran says because the people who follow the Quran are the terrorists and they are anti-God and anti-Israel. And over it's approximately 55% of the Muslims in the world today would identify with the Shiite Muslims. And those are the Muslims typically that take the Quran very, very seriously, as does this lady. And while some of them are not willing to actually carry out an act of terrorism, they are sympathetic and even encouraging to those who do. So we're in a precarious place right now in our nation. But the Jewish people are also the people through whom God will bring the Messiah back from heaven. And so God's timetable is done through the people of Israel. And, of course, the Bible teaches that at the end of time, God would regather the people, the Jewish people, back into the land. But it's going to be at the end of time when most of the Jews will actually come to faith. Now, the Bible does say that there's not a total hardening of the Jews, but a partial hardening. In other words, most Jews um, just don't have a clue as to what this whole thing is concerning the Lord Jesus. Now, if someone does hear with clarity and power the gospel, then at that point, they're responsible, just like a Gentile is. So God is not a respecter of persons, and God warns his people, uh, and he warns people in general, uh, through his people, that if you've heard the gospel and you do nothing with it, and then the rapture does take place and the 70th week of Daniel commences, that it's going to be too late. Uh, The scripture warns that the lawless one, uh, one of the 30-some titles in the Bible for the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, or namely, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, as he's called, he comes in accord with the activity of Satan. He gives his life to the evil one. There's only one other called the son of perdition in the Bible, and that was Judas. And he gave his life to the devil. And the devil literally came and inhabited him. It's one thing to be inhabited by a demon. It's quite another thing to be inhabited by the devil himself. And so this man comes with the devil's power, with signs, wonders, and miracles. The scripture says here in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the next verse, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. So he's bringing deception, and the deception is aimed towards those who perish. He's talking about unbelievers. Why are they going to perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. See, when you reject the truth of the Bible, you are more apt to believe a lie. And there are many people today who are in cults who have rejected the Christian faith and just say they're agnostic or atheist, or they're into Buddhism or Hinduism or some other spiritual form you know the the thing with the millennial generation that we're finding now is they they say they are spiritual but they don't you know necessarily identify with any religion uh, that that's the apostasy of these end days and because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved the next verse says for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false and they're going to believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So there's a lot of Jewish people today who do take pleasure in wickedness. Homosexuality is a huge problem in Israel. It's one of the leading countries in the world that promotes homosexuality, and there is a wickedness movement in the nation. About 35% of the Jews are, in some sense, in the nation of Israel, practicing Jews And uh, there are degrees of practicing Jews and different stripes within the realm of the Orthodox. But with that said, many of them don't have a clue as to who Jesus is. Uh, They don't have a clue as to what their own scriptures say. What's amazing to me when I meet Orthodox people is while they have read books about the Bible done by various rabbinic schools and different rabbis, They've not read or studied the scriptures much themselves. And so God is warning that a day is coming because the gifts and the callings of God the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable. God made some promises to the nation of Israel that He is not going to back out on, that He is going to to keep. Because of that, there is coming a day when the nation as a whole will turn to the Lord Jesus during the 70th week period. Every Jew will not be saved, but as a whole, that's the descriptive term terms that are used when you read Romans 11 and you go back and read the Old Testament text from which they're drawn. The nation as a whole will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, we know that for several reasons, because there's a judgment of Jews at the end of the tribulation, just as there's a judgment of the nations, of the sheep and the goats that represent the Gentile nations of the world, who are judged based on the way they treated the believing Jews, those Jews who followed the Messiah, those that were kind and compassionate to the Jewish people are identified as sheep in the parable of Matthew 25. Those who treated Christ's brethren, his Jewish physical brethren, Uh, in a harmful way, they are considered goats. And so that separation of the Gentile nations takes place at the end of the tribulation, just as there's a separation of the Jewish people who are believers and unbelievers at the end of the tribulation. And um, Isaiah and Ezekiel both uh, address that, Isaiah 60 and Ezekiel 20. Um, So um, Israel's elect, Isaiah in ezekiel that 's how I remembered it in sixty divided six it 's a sixty twenty relationship so in Isaiah sixty you have the um, the Jewish people who are separated from the uh, unbelieving Jewish people, and then in Ezekiel twenty you have those who are passing under the rod, so to speak and the believing Jews are separated from the unbelieving Jews. There's actually quite a number of judgments that are mentioned in Scripture, about seven in its totality. Uh, We just think of just this one big judgment, but there's a number that actually... Uh, will unfold over the course of time. And um, nonetheless, these, these are important questions you're asking. So these Jews will be accountable who have heard the gospel, but most have not. And that's going to change during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. That's called the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the principal purposes of the tribulation is to bring the
0: Jewish people to repentance. You know, you mentioned uh, some Congress folk and and apparently some pastors as well that are making anti-Semitic comments in this day and age. Yeah. And um, a listener wanted to know that um, she writes, these comments are influencing some against the Jews. Yes. And and they'd like to know how this fits in with your study in Revelation.
1: Well, we're coming to that. Um, This Sunday, we hit Revelation 17. And so we'll be in Revelation 17, I think, for at least three Sundays. And and then, so Revelation 17 and 18, the focus is Babylon. And so Babylon, it's called Mystery Babylon. And it refers to a religious order that will happen at the end of time, where there is a one-world religious system. And so the Bible teaches that there is going to be a total apostasy away from biblical Christianity and against the Jewish people. And it will be under the leadership initially of the Antichrist who will have this one-world religion, and people will have to follow him. And there's also going to be a one-world economic system as well, a one-world economy that will be governed by the Antichrist. And, of course, the Jews are often hated because they are blessed people. God's kept the Jewish people together. I mean, you think about it. They are the only people in the course of 3,000 years who still remain as a people. Think about all the other ites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all the ites that are listed there that make up the various Canaanite tribes. They, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. They all intermarried, and, but the Jewish people are still a people. They have the same religion, the same scripture, the same language. They're back in the same land. That's a miracle of God because God is going to culminate human history. And so part of the way that God has kept the Jewish people together is he's blessed them. He has um, blessed the Jewish people and allowed them in the midst of their sufferings to continue to prosper. And some people hate that. Some people take great offense at that. And so, the um, big movement now that is, there's almost like clubs on college campuses, the BDS movement. And Alan Dershowitz just wrote a new book that's uh, come out in the last four or five months called The BDS Movement. It's a good read. Uh, he's not a believer, he's more of a secular kind of Jew, but he still has a um, secular in deference to, say, truly Orthodox Jews. So, he's a religious Jew. Um, but he wouldn't fall into the Orthodox camp. But nonetheless, um, he does have a respect for the Jewish people, and he's very concerned over what's happening because this is really a growing anti-Semitic movement. And what's sad is that the um, replacement theology of our day is feeding it. Unknowingly, some of these guys in the Reformed camp, but they are feeding um, a— new view that basically supplants Israel. And that, that vacuum then is quickly uh, being filled with anti-Semitism. And so the whole replacement theology, supersessionism, as it's called, is uh, a movement that came out of origin in Augustine's theology, but then was really formalized in Roman Catholicism. And some of the Protestant reformers who came out of Catholicism adopted that same mentality and so it's not a healthy thing to say that the church is the new israel and god is done with national israel you have to butcher so much of god's word and write it away and rationalize it and spiritualize it and apply an entirely different principle for interpreting the scriptures as you do the rest of the bible and this, again, is where Fruchenbaum's book would be really helpful if someone wants to study this in detail, Israelogy by Arnold Frukenbaum. Uh Nonetheless, these, these are important issues, and we're feeding uh, a system, the seeds are being planted for this coming day. So that, that's a great question, and we'll cover this in great detail. Stay with me in Revelation 17 and 18 when we study Babylon, Mystery Babylon, and Economic Babylon
0: alright two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we did get a call a minute ago, uh, they'd like to know your opinion of a fellow by the name of Andrew Farley and this individual's view of hyper-grace, confession, and the Old and New Covenants. I don't know him, so I'll have to Google him and
1: find out. I don't think he's too well-known a guy. I know most of the well-known guys, but I could Google him and find out. But... Um, What, though, the hyper-grace movement is, I can comment on that, and I don't know, I don't want to judge this guy falsely because I don't know him, uh, but typically what's meant by the hyper-grace movement is often dubbed easy believism, where you are saved by grace and works don't really matter. It's a, a form of antinomianism, and so... Uh, it's really kind of a knee-jerk reaction to people who front-load the gospel in an unhealthy way with lordship salvation. Does the Bible teach lordship salvation? Yes and no. It all depends how you define the terms. Does the Bible teach repentance? Yes and no. all depends how you define the terms. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. And yet the one book in the New Testament that is written with one express purpose to lead people to Christ. These things I've written, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these have been recorded that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah. And then in believing, you might have life in his name. So it's written to convert the lost guy, but also when he's converted so he can grow up and experience the life that Christ has. The thief, he said in that gospel, comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. But he said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So John's gospel is written with an expressed evangelistic purpose. Sometimes, you know, you're challenging an unsaved person and you say, well, why don't you read? People often say the gospel of Mark. And I say, well, why don't you? That's because it's a short gospel. I say, why don't you read the gospel of John? Because it's aimed towards the unbeliever. And his conversion. So that would be a better book to read. But never once in the entire gospel of John does the word repent ever occur. But repentance is implicit in genuine faith. When someone comes to put their faith in Christ, it's not a faith to trust him to feed your family this week or to pay the light bill or to keep you safe at night. Uh, We often refer to those kinds of things as daily bread faith needs trusting God with the everyday needs that we face in life. And we need to walk by faith, but we first need to be saved by faith. And so when the Bible speaks of being saved by grace through faith, The direction of the faith, of course, is in the Lord Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not trusting God with your daily needs, because sometimes you ask a person why God should let him into heaven, and they say, well, I believe in Jesus. And you probe a little bit, and what they mean by that is, "I, I trust him with my life, the details of my life. Well, that's something you do after you're saved. You have to come into a relationship with him before you can begin to trust him with the details of your life where he takes responsibility for you as one of his kids, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them that believed in his name, he has given the right to be called a child of God. So you become a child of God. You come into a relationship with Jesus when you receive him and you receive what he did for you on the cross, that he died for your sins, he was buried and he was raised. And so to call sin, sin, You have to acknowledge that it's wrong, that it's evil. So you meet people today who say, well, you know, I've been saved. Jesus saved me from my sin. And, you know, but they are immoral. They're drunks. They uh, have no love for the people of God. Uh, They show none of the marks of conversion. They just live a pagan life. Those are deceived people. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you bring your sin to him. You're willing to acknowledge that it's wrong, that it really needs forgiveness, so, I meet people all the time, they're living immorally, and they tell me they're born again Christians, yet they've been shacking up with someone they're not married to, sometimes for years. They're just deceived. You know, the New Testament would give them no assurance that they've met the living God because the direction of their life is far different from someone who's had a birth from above. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away, and all things have become new. We're not talking about perfection, but we are speaking of a new direction, both negatively and positively. So positively, by this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. There's a love for other born-again people. Uh, That's a mark of genuine conversion. Positively, the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you've become a child of God. Negatively, they've said no. They've crucified the flesh in regards to its evil desires. And they're walking after the things of God. There's a new direction that takes place. That change of mind to come to Christ, acknowledge your sin as wrong is called repentance. Well, the people in the hyper-grace movement sometimes ignore that, and they've minimized the gospel where I will often, you know, if I put it in a formulatic line, I'll say, well, faith in Christ alone, meaning his death, burial, and resurrection, equals salvation plus good works. Or in the hyper grace movement, they would say, well, faith in Christ alone, meaning his death, burial, and resurrection, equals salvation, and works don't necessarily have to follow. And that's an abuse of the grace of God, the grace of God that brings us salvation. The grace of God has appeared to all men, the Bible says. It's available for everyone. Jesus didn't die for some select group called the elect. He died for every person who's ever lived, who's alive, and yet to be born. But the grace of God that brings us salvation, or the grace of God that has appeared to all men, instructs us, that meaning believers. So he goes from all men to the pronoun us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live zealously in the present age. A change of mind over sin and a need to trust Christ. But some people, again, it's a knee-jerk reaction. They front-load the gospel where, you know, they say you have to clean up your act to come to Christ. You can't do it. The man who sins is a slave to sin. And the longer you've been in the sin, it has such a hold on you. But you are convicted by the Spirit of God, and you bring that sin to Christ to change and make you new.
0: So as you've said many times from the pulpit, you are saved by grace through faith alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. That's exactly right, Rick. All right. Uh, 843-525-1859 if you have a question today. And Richard from Hilton Head writes, Is there a reference in the Old Testament about Judas's betrayal? Well,
1: yes, there is. Um, and the New Testament actually references it. So when you come to the Gospels and you're trying to think, now where is that in the Gospels? Just always think the last chapter in the, fourth, fourth Gosp- in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is always the resurrection chapter. Uh, the one exception to that would be the Gospel of John, where the resurrection chapter would be chapter 20, and then chapter 21 is a post-resurrection chapter. Uh, it encompasses some of those 40 days when Christ walked in the earth before he was assumed into heaven. Come to Luke's Gospel... Last chapter would be resurrection. Chapter before that, 23, would be uh, his crucifixion. Uh, The chapter before that, um, his arrest, and so forth. So, um, in Matthew's gospel, because Matthew's gospel is a Jewish gospel, it's written to Jewish believers, each gospel is written with a different audience in mind. So, you think resurrection chapter 28, you think crucifixion chapter 27, you think arrest chapter 26. And so that kind of gives you a feel in each Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where the details are that you're looking for. So you're going to think, oh, Judas, and he um, he's a fellow that hung himself and so forth. And and of course, uh, that would take place during the time of Christ's arrest, which would, in his crucifixion, which is in Uh, The arrest chapter kind of bleeds over, but then it goes right into the crucifixion. But in chapter 27, the events leading right up to the crucifixion. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. 30 pieces of silver, that's important. And he said, This, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. So he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury. Since it is the price of blood. These guys were just super pious religious guys like, oh, this is dirty money. You know, we're we're orchestrating a murder. We convinced this guy to do it for us. We paid him off, but not, but you know, he's giving the money back. Oh, this is dirty money. That's what religion does. It makes up all these rules to counter guilty consciences. And they conferred together. And with the money, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood, Halkidamah. In this day, um, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, uh, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave uh, that money for the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now that's Matthew 27. And I just read the first nine verses, 10 verses. And if you have the New American Standard, different publishers do it differently. But the uh, Lockman Foundation that manages the copyright on the New American Standard, uh, in verses 9 and 10, it's in all capital letters. Now, not 100% of the time, but 99.9% of the time when you see all capital letters And the New American Standard, that's an Old Testament quotation. And so you'd say, oh, this is from the Old Testament. They took the 30 pieces of silver. Oh, so I guess it is in the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible with footnotes, and you should get one if you don't have one, one of the things that we do for new Christians through the generosity of a family in our church when they come to meet the pastor, they get a Bible, beautiful Bible, really nice Bible, expensive Bible. Um, and it has footnotes in it. And the footnotes can be really helpful because they can show you sometimes where a passage is from that's being referenced. And especially when you are reading an Old Testament quotation or you're reading about a person from the Old Testament or an event from the Old Testament. So if you're reading John chapter 3 and and Nicodemus asked, how is a man born again? And Jesus said, well, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus makes an analogy between Moses and the Son of Man that whoever may believe in him will have eternal life. And then the most quoted verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. So uh, contextually, John three sixteen is understood in the illustration with Moses and the brazen serpent. And you read that and say, Well, where is that? I I'm not sure where that was. And that's why if you had a Bible with footnotes, you could go into the margin. You'd say, Oh yeah, verse John three fourteen, you go down to verse fourteen. Oh yeah, that's from Numbers twenty-one. Well, here in Matthew twenty-seven, you'd say, Oh, that's from the prophet Zechariah, chapter eleven. So the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah lives about 480 years before Christ. Uh, he comes back with the third group that returns from Babylon. He comes at the end of the Old Testament age, and uh, he has um, uh, eight visions in the first six chapters, and then he has four, um, uh, uh, four messages, or six messages, and then he has um, four prophecies. And so it comes at the end of the book, um, 9, 10, 11, and 12, focus on this prophetic section. And it's a very, very important section because it deals with the events that lead up to the the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. So he, he addresses both issues, what Messiah will do when he first comes, and then how Israel will be treated when he comes again. And so a lot of the things that we're actually studying in the Revelation are taught in the prophet Zechariah, especially the 11th, 12th, uh, 13th, and the 14th chapters. So uh, these are important, important chapters.
0: And um, one thing that comes to my mind when you read that particular passage, repentance is not, I mean, remorse is not repentance.
1: That's right. Um, sometimes people are sad Um but they haven't necessarily repented and so Judas is an excellent example of that Rick good 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 call there uh, sometimes people can cry uh, Esau cried but did, never repented. Uh, sometimes people can be sorry Pharaoh said I've sinned but he, he, he can he had confession without repentance. Esau had crying without repentance Judas had. Uh, a sense of remorse, but not a godly remorse that led to repentance. He was just sorry that he knew he had betrayed innocent blood, but he didn't repent. In his time, he had his opportunity, but he had hardened his heart beyond the point of repentance. And that's why there's an urgency. Uh, And maybe there's even someone listening and you're not sure that you're saved. You should settle that. You should go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to, would you like to have God as your friend? You know, or call me up and I'll meet with you to meet the pastor and uh, I'll go through the plan of salvation with you. And I usually have at least a handful every week, sometimes five show up, sometimes 25 show up. It's different at every meeting. Uh, on average, we usually have around 10. Uh, but at this meeting, these are people often who come, some who are looking for a church. Uh, we just had um Uh, two Methodists who came because of the big movement now, the big split that's getting ready to take place in the Methodist church are getting ready to vote on the one church movement over this homosexuality thing. And what they're going to do is, and I think it's going to pass sadly, is they'll say, well, if you as a local church don't want to marry gay people, that's okay. But if the Methodist church next door wants to marry gay people, then that's okay. And so it's just a two-sided thing, unwilling to take a position and so we have people sometimes looking for a church. They realize their church is apostatized or other people who come who aren't saved and they're trying to find Christ. And uh, But if you're listening to me today and you don't know that you know that you know, if you don't have a true assurance of salvation, and I would say on average that 30% of the lost people that I meet tell me they're absolutely 100% sure they're going to heaven. And when they actually... Uh, take the basis that they have in their thinking as to why God would let them into heaven, and they look in the mirror of Scripture, they find out that they have a false assurance. So these are important issues to settle, especially in these days where we have a growing apostasy, just as the Bible predicted would happen at the end of time.
0: All right. Chris from Hiram, Georgia writes, My wife and I are about 16 messages into your Revelation study, and we're wondering, since babies and children who are unable to make a profession of faith go to heaven— we would also assume they would be raptured. Particularly, this adds to the unmeasurable chaos as one thinks about unbelieving parents when their children disappear and unbelieving pregnant mothers when their children disappear from the womb. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, this is a great question. And um, there are some differing opinions as to what happens at the rapture. Some have argued that only the children of believers go up in the rapture. Um, I I don't think so if a woman's pregnant or if there's a little child. Uh, It's possible that, let's say you had a five-year-old, just for the sake of argument, who has maybe, quote-unquote, not reached the age of accountability. And we know that the 70th week of Daniel is seven years long. So potentially that five-year-old could be 12 years old by the end of the tribulation, assuming he lived that long and could have an opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the gospel because the great commission is going to be fulfilled. Jesus said this gospel should go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come uh, in Matthew chapter 24. (coughs) People quote that all the time and say, well, we got to get the gospel out to the whole world. And we do. It doesn't change our responsibility so Jesus can come back. Well, that verse is going to be fulfilled during the final seven years of human history uh, because the Bible teaches every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to hear the gospel, uh, and God is going to have different means in which to do it. There'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Uh, there'll be two witnesses, and somehow all the language barriers are going to be surpassed, Uh, There'll even be an angel who will fly in the high heavens and preach the gospel to the whole world. And so people across the planet. So I suppose it's in the realm of possibility. Let's say you had an eight-year-old who we might not consider accountable, but he could be 15 by the end of the tribulation. Maybe God in his wisdom will know, oh, yeah, you know, he's going to have a clear shot at it. We'll wait. But little, little children, um, I think, fall into the same uh, category uh, as Uh, you know, if if a person is a pagan today and they lose their three-year-old child, if a person is a pagan today and they miscarry their baby, because life does begin at the point of conception. And I know it's all over the news right now is that on a child's birthday, you can kill the baby. Oh yeah, here is his birthday. Happy birthday. Let's put a knife through him. I mean, that's what they're saying. Listen, you're doing the same thing when you abort a baby who's three weeks in the womb. I just saw a baby uh, that was three months old in the womb through this incredible new sonograms that they have. And you could just see the whole baby's face and everything. It was just astounding. The, the, the imagery, even in the last two years and the uh, increase in technology and what they've been able to do. So those little babies, even the babies of unbelievers, go to heaven. How do I know that? A number of passages, like Jonah chapter 4. Uh, Jonah, who is the supposed to be the uh, call of God to go and to, to preach, he's a prodigal in chapter 1. He goes in the opposite direction because he's a patriot. He loves Israel, and he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites, because the Ninevites are one of Israel's worst enemies. You want us, to, me to go to the Ninevites? They hate us. They've been mean to us. They've persecuted us. You want me to go preach to them? Yeah, I do. I love even the Ninevites. And so he goes in the opposite direction, and, of course, that prodigal prophet becomes a praying prophet in a great fish, and God just kind of brings about uh, some real change in his heart, and he carries out the mission, the preaching prophet— And he does what God says, and then he pouts in the fourth chapter, and he's sitting under a plant, and he's just hoping God's just going to rain fire down on the place and that their repentance was not genuine. And God says, do you have good reason to pout, to be angry about the plant? You know, I have good reason to be angry, even at death, Jonah said. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, which there are 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their left and their right hands. So God speaks here of little children. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 speaks of uh, children who have no knowledge between good and evil. Ezekiel 16, uh, Jeremiah 19 also speak of, of the slaughter of my children. And in both the Ezekiel 16 and the Jeremiah 19 passage, consistent with how Christ describes the kingdom of God as being like little children, those are the children of pagan parents, and yet God refers to them as my children. So if um, the little children who die are not accountable and they go to heaven, be they Christian or non-Christian, I think you can expect the same at the rapture. Uh, with pregnant mothers. Now, you know, at what age? And God sees the big picture and the seven years that will follow, and whether a child's going to have a chance to hear the gospel before he gets wiped out in some expression of wrath. Uh, but God will take away multitudes and multitudes of children, Christian and non-children, Christians alike, off the planet. So, if you're raptured and you have a one-year-old living in the home. Uh, Don't worry, your one year old's going to be there. And that one year old will automatically be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And I don't think he'll be one year old anymore. He'll be in his resurrected body for all of eternity. Anyway, those are great questions. Time has elapsed us again. Where did it go, Rick? Um, But thank you for joining us today for the Bible Line. If you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop down menu. Ask Dr. Berge a question. And when your question is answered, you will get emailed back so that you don't even have to listen to the Bible line when it's being aired, but you can go back later and listen to your answer. Thanks for being with us today. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Let him use you. Win someone to Christ this week.